1: Essay collections, especially those on feminism, are united by theory, most of which is in jargon and is inaccessible. It's one of the many problems of being in academia. Bad Girls of the Arab World is so refreshing because it's not that. It's an edited volume that gets artists to speak about their own art, educators to speak about their own teaching experiences, in addition to clear-cut academic studies that stand apart from the edited volume crowd. It features essays on politics, society, art, and culture, all on the Arab World. And maybe it's so refreshing and accessible because of its subject. It's about transgressions. It's about bad girls, something every woman is familiar with. My name is N.A. Mensor, and today on New Books in Middle East Studies, we're talking to one of the editors of Bad Girls the Arab World out 2017 from University uh, University of Texas Press, which she edited with the late Rukal West, Nadia Yaqub. Nadia Yacoub is an associate professor at the Department of Asian Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where she's also chair of the Department of Asian Studies and adjunct associate professor at the Department of English and Comparative Literature. She's also associate editor for film and theater at the Review of Middle East Studies, an editorial collective member with the Journal of Middle East Women's Studies, and an advisory board member Um, with the Middle East Journal of Culture and Communication. Her research interests include Arab cultural texts ranging from medieval literature and contemporary oral poetry to modern prose, fiction, and visual culture. She's the author of many articles and a book, Pen, Swords, and the Springs of Art, The Oral Poetry, Dueling of Palestinian Weddings in the Galilee, out 2006 from Brill Academic Publishers, and the forthcoming from University of Texas Press, July 2018, Palestinian Cinema in the Days of Revolution. Welcome to the podcast, Nadia. Thank you. So we always start off with a bit of a biographical question. How did you come to academia?
0: Um, Well, it's interesting that you would start there. For a long time, I thought of myself as coming to academia because I didn't know what else to do. Um, But what I've realized recently is that I came to academia mainly because I'm intensely curious. um, And I keep wanting to to learn more and know more. Um, And so really, being a student and to to be in academia is to be a student for one's entire life. is really the thing that I find the most pleasure in. Um, So I began, uh, my undergraduate work was in linguistics. Um, I did a brief foray into journalism. And then um, uh, uh, when I decided to to move formally towards an academic career, um, also was planning to continue in linguistics. I was studying Arabic linguistics in the Department of Near Eastern Studies at UC Berkeley. Um, and then over the course of my graduate studies, shifted gradually towards literature. Um, uh, and then in my work uh, here at UNC Chapel Hill um, in the Department of Asian Studies, I've, I've done considerable work in literature, but also moved uh, uh, into uh, visual culture. Um, and obviously, gender has been Um, a constant theme sort of running through my work as well.
1: No, I very much identify with that. I think a lot of us come to academia thinking, oh, well, I don't really know what else to do. I really like to write. But then I think think the curiosity is a big aspect of it. And I think that's something we all discover is that we really are curious about what we study and really love it um, and want it to get to a wider audience. So This volume, um, how did it come about? I understand that it was modeled after uh, another edited volume that came out uh, many years ago called bad girls of Japan.
0: Yes. Yes. Um, and I am a firm believer in serendipity. Um, and in, um, just sort of diving into new ideas, uh, because they appeal to you. So, um, uh, uh, when my colleague Jan Bardsley published *Bad Girls of Japan*, it immediately came to my mind there should be a book *Bad Girls of the Arab World*. Um, now that was well over ten years ago, uh, and um, it took a long time for me and Rula to conceptualize this volume, um, uh, it, and it came out came came about over the process of conversations with many wonderful women over the years, including Jan, um, also um, Elizabeth Bishop, uh, Frances Husso, uh, to mention just a couple of them. Um, but, um, so as we were talking about this, really when it was just a sort of a vague idea, um, one of the first things that became really clear is that bad girls of the Arab world is going to be very different from bad girls in Japan because Japan is obviously very different from the Arab world. Um, uh, and uh, what uh, so so the even just the meaning of the term bad, the terms bad and girls. Um, would be quite different. So we spent a lot of time thinking about that. Um, and, uh, and then when we started to invite women to contribute to the volume, um, had that very much in mind as well. You know, how specifically these terms would look as they're applied to the Arab world as opposed to Japan or anywhere else for that matter.
1: Yeah, bad girl is such an interesting term when I hear it because I jump to the term girl. I don't immediately go to bad because I think girl can often be used as a diminutive instead of woman. And that's one thing I think we all try to be very careful about is to use the word woman um, when describing people over a certain age um, so as not to diminutize. And I think – the word bad is also really interesting because one person's bad can mean another person's good. Just thinking of um, Mamdani's um, Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, which is also the title of an unrelated podcast on Islam in America. Um, so uh, this volume defines bad girl in terms of transgression. And even that isn't defined as negative. It's really pliable. So who's using the term bad girl? Is it applied by others or are others using it to describe themselves or are you using it as a category of analysis?
0: So, um, uh, yeah, so let's start. So, um, first of all, with your, your question about the term girls and I agree completely. And in fact, I had a long section of the introduction that I had to cut out addressing this point because, um, uh, um, so one thing I will notice about the volume is that, uh, the volume is about women. It's not really about girls. All the, the people that are talked about in the various chapters are adults. Um, and uh, we do not use the term girls to refer to them. Um, although some of the women obviously do refer to themselves as girls. So we're making a distinction uh, in how we use the term girls very carefully, exactly to avoid the problematic use, which, by the way, uh, I have noticed um, is really creeping into the language um, in ways that is quite surprising for someone who lived through the 70s um, and all the effort that women of that generation put into um, getting the term women um, embedded in the language as the preferable term to refer to women. and then when it came to the term bad, um, uh, part of the work that we did over the course of you know, the conversations we had as we began to think about how we would conceptualize the volume is when we talked to colleagues and friends about, you know, oh, what do you think of a, a volume, Bad Girls of the Arab World? What immediately came to people's minds were um, the sort of transgressive women who are shattering um, uh, borders and boundaries and limitations and a sort of a celebration of that. Um, uh, so, you know, the first woman to do this, the first woman to do that. Um, and that was not at all what we wanted to do uh, because it seemed to me that that, that sort of a narrative can feed into problematic perceptions of Arab, Middle Eastern, or Muslim women as being somehow oppressed, uh, um, uh, uniquely oppressed, uh, and only oppressed, uh, and therefore to be celebrated only when they are um, transgressing their oppression. It also seemed to me um, and this i 'll sound like i 'm contradicting myself, but if you read the volume you'll see that i 'm not. It also seemed to us that um, for that for those kinds of narratives to be the bulk of the book uh, would be an oversimplification of the difficulties that women in the Arab world face when they do um, engage with or find themselves against their will engaging with transgression. So um, so the term bad, um, uh, I think if you read the volume carefully, you'll see that uh, some women really do seize that term uh, and um, embrace it. And others are a little more ambivalent about it. Um, either with regard to themselves or with regard to the women that they're writing about in their pieces, if, if they're not autobiographical pieces. Um, uh, um, but there is this, this engagement with transgression that is, um, that, excuse me, that's the, uh, the thread that unites all the pieces. Um, and transgression can be something that, Women do consciously. Um, uh, if, uh, for instance, um, um, uh, you know, Ali al Mahdi, for instance, um, when she posted uh, nude photos of herself on Facebook, she's clearly transgressing uh, in a way that she's fully aware of what she's doing and she's doing it um, on purpose. Um, But there are other cases where women may find themselves um, having to decide reluctantly to transgress or find themselves uh, having transgressed without intending to um, or finding behaviors that they uh, always thought were. Okay, we're, you know, um, uh, and finding those behaviors um, transgressive. Or, as in the case of the Palestinian mothers in Adania Shibley's article, um, not really doing anything bad at all, just by virtue of who they are um, and how their very existence challenges um, uh, a political narrative Um, that they end up being labeled as transgressive. I
1: really like that emphasis on transgression just because I think, and and as you said, it can be unknowingly, willingly consciously um, it's against a variety of what's viewed as transgressive against a variety of different forces. Um, And I also, I think the fact that these women are not extraordinary or they're extraordinary in their ordinariness, sort of as you described, not wanting to go with the first woman to do this, the first one to do that, I think really emphasizes just how societies change at the micro level, at the social and cultural level. Um, and one of my favorite examples is um, the one that... Um, the, right, the, the late Rulaka West found herself in the midst of, and it's her her account of teaching. And she describes a situation where her students in her feminist theory class receive a backlash for a video they produced on sexual harassment, um, especially to the second posting of it, which they didn't necessarily intend. Um, and what I find so interesting about that is that one of the accusations is is one of West toxification, and that's one that she faced. Um, and it's, it's interesting because a lot of it is, again, how much are you sort of what are you reading? What are you consuming? And how does your outward presentation of it, such as the production of this video, um, present as as, as you going against your own culture? And that's what she was. She was, and her students were accused as. And in particular, I think when we write about the Middle East or about Arabic speakers and 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 about Muslims, um, there's often this desire to create a binary, right, between the East and the West. So how much? how much variation was there in the cases presented in the books in terms of the relationship with the West?
0: That's a great question. And that's something that we also gave a lot of thought to. Um, so uh, um, one of the issues uh, for women in the Arab world is the way in which the narratives about gender and um, uh, get manipulated both by uh, um uh you know governments states um, parties religious movements um, uh, in the Arab world but also by um, by Western powers so um, so a lot of east-west or Arab world Western relations get somehow gets mediated through this discussion of gender how are women treated um, um is the Arab world more patriarchal than other places? Um, uh, um, You know, what kinds of aid will NGOs give? Uh, You know, does gender have to be a part of every project? Um, uh, um, So that's one factor. Um, uh, And we definitely wanted (coughs) that to come out and it does um, uh, in, for instance, uh, um, uh, sorry, um, Anna Marie Butler's chapter on Aminas Bui, uh, the Tunisian woman. Um, here's a woman who um, at a very young age began working um, with FEMEN, this controversial uh, feminist movement that does these topless um, protests, uh, and then decided fairly quickly to distance herself from that group. Um, so because she felt that, um, that, that, sh- that uh, her story was being exploited by this group to make these sort of generic critiques of her society and culture that she did not agree with um so here's here's a you know sort of an example of, of the of one of the complexities um, regarding east-west relations as it gets mediated um, through women um, uh, so the charge of West West toxification by Rula's critics um, is sort of seizing on things like feminine. Um, uh, and using that in a broad brush way uh, to keep women like Rula from um, engaging in justifiable critiques um, uh, of uh, practices in Jordan or at the university um, where she worked um, so it so it, it, it works both ways um, uh, and women are sort of caught in the middle and negotiating um, uh both what um groups like femen are doing or even well meaning um you know uh NGOs um, uh, governments that are sending aid with strings attached um to the arab world and also what's happening on the ground um in the arab world um, uh in terms of using western discourses against women themselves. At the same time, um, uh, it's not as if, I mean, that in itself is also an ov- oversimplification. So uh, one of the things that you'll s- notice, many of the, women's the women in the volume um, are operating between the Arab world and the West. And and having a foot in two worlds is part of what allows them to do their work and to live their lives um, with the degree of um, of agency and uh, that they feel. So you they have, need. for instance, um, state sponsorship of projects meant to uh, empower women at various times in history and in various. Countries, it, it's often done in a lead-footed way, um, but nonetheless, um, it does ex- it does exist or it has existed at certain times and places. Um, uh, you also have, uh, um, for instance, in the Rowan Ibrahim's chapter on uh, the treatment of orphans in Jordan, um, uh, you have, a, you know, she's describing a case of social services provided by the state which are by no means perfect um, and are, uh, you know, you know are, are in some ways entrapping these young girls into repeating the narratives of their mothers, um, but um, uh, are at the same time providing a measure of support. Um, and uh, we can't forget that um, situations – like that, the, 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 uh, the treatment of, of children, um, who don't have strong family structures to support them is a fraught issue in almost every society. If we look at the broken, um, systems in our own country with foster care, um, uh, and the treatment of, of, uh, families, especially families of color, um, uh, we can see that, that, uh, um these issues are really difficult to address, um, and the Arab world is not alone in not addressing them uh, as well as one would hope that they would be.
1: Yeah, one always hopes that that's sort of the result of works on the Middle East, work, really well researched, really well detailed and nuanced work, that it will... Basically, um, influence p- push our eye towards our our societies here in the um, in the U.S. and then help us see those little nuances as well. Not to it's not an apologist uh, stance, but rather it's one that says that there are all these little nuances that act upon how women and marginalized peoples are treated, and also that there there's a diversity in sort of how those experiences um, represent, and also how we should represent them and speak about them. So, mentioned the state, and I'm I'm really conflicted about how to view the state in Arab context, especially because one thing about this volume, and you sort of alluded to it earlier, is that this volume would have looked really different had it come out 10 years ago, right? Because we didn't have the Arab Spring. Um, and the Arab Spring complicated where the state stands in Arab societies, particularly those societies that weren't necessarily thrown into great conflict, such as in Syria or in Libya. And um, But rather those that 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 faced um, such as in the case of Egypt, um, political upheaval, um, or in the case of Lebanon, which is sort of feeling the after effects of um, Syria and the war in Syria. So when I think of the state, I I I try not to think of it as all encompassing because that gets it too much credit, but they also have a tremendous amount of oppressive control. And then there's also the question of colonialism, colonial legacies, sort of how did they influence contemporary states and statecraft? Um, To what extent do we blame colonialism? So how do we understand the state in the Arab world vis-a-vis women who transgress?
0: So that also is a huge question and it probably takes me well beyond my areas of expertise. Um, But I think, um, partly it relates back to what we just talked about in terms of relationships between the Arab world and the West. So there's the, you know, there is the question of how gender becomes this sort of pawn um, that is used uh, in um, in other sorts of, of negotiations and relationships. Um, so you might have regimes that um, attempt to advance women's rights, um, you know, as part of their relationship, uh, with the West, um, and, uh, um, and fail or succeed to different measures. But then you also have, uh, you know, and here, this is perhaps, a, you know, more the, the legacy of colonialism and, um, uh, and neocolonialism, uh, which is, I guess, not really a legacy, but a presence, <laughs> a present condition um, of uh, whereby, um, uh, you know, of course, Islam and religion are considered to be backward and traditional and modernity and women's rights are considered to be progressive and good and um, the direction that everyone should go. But if, if, uh, If women's rights are closely tied to modernity and the and the political order, the post-colonial or the colonial and the post-colonial political order, which is terribly disadvantageous to the Arab world and exploitative of its people and resources, um, then you can see how there might be backlashes in the Arab world, either on the part of states or other groups, um, uh, or just people um, against uh, against the West, but then also against um, women's rights as a sort of a Western thing. So if you you know you don't want to be Western because Western that to be Western is to exploit the Arab world. And so if Western is equated in this discourse with women's rights, then you go the other direction. I mean, this of course is a simplification, but um, uh, so um, uh, um, I'm not saying that, you know, people are thinking in this kind of a binary way Um, But there's a way in which these forces press people to uh, um, perhaps along these lines, uh, pressure people along these lines.
1: One of the most overt cases I find of that in the book, um, where you're sort of forced to think about the West and the Arab world Um, is the case of Neda Proudy. And what I appreciate about that case in particular that I want to note is that there's a flexibility with the term the Arab world there that I appreciated. You include the U.S. and Arab Americans because Neda Proudy er, is an Arab American CIA agent. And that particular entry was written by uh, Randa Kayali. And it's basically about how um, Prouty used narratives orientalism to reinstate her U.S. citizenship after several accusations stripped her of it in 2007, I believe. And it, it felt so different from other cases in the book where um, you were talking about Arab women in
0: the Arab world. So what led you to include her story in this volume? Oh, I think Nada Proti had to be in the volume, um, or somebody like her, and that that goes back to our definition of what is a bad girl. We were desperate to include a bad girl that would um, that who was really bad, <laughs> in the sense that um, uh, somebody that uh, you would have trouble um, that, that most of our imagined audience would have trouble empathizing with. So, um, so, uh, a bad girl, like the superstar champions that people, you know, initially, not everybody, but some of our interlocutors, as we were conceptualizing the volume, thought that we would be talking about, um, you know, the women who were breaking barriers, um, um, Uh, everybody can, can root for them. Um, or, you know, the bad girls who, who are victims, um, everybody can feel sorry for them, but the bad girls who make choices that many of our audience for this volume would be uncomfortable with such as, um, to, uh, um, to become a CIA agent, uh, to, uh, um, uh, to repudiate one's own family, to perhaps engage in some shady dealings, um, uh, um, that is, that's bad behavior. And it had to be part of the conversation. Um, Now, in the case of Nada Pruti, what's interesting, um, I mean, we can, it's very easy to to sort of raise an eyebrow at what she did or, you know, uh, tisk, tisk her for the choices that she made for, you know, um, perhaps self-orientalizing vis-a-vis her own culture. But here you have a woman who comes from an abusive background um, who makes certain choices um, in order to escape that. Um, they may not be the choices that I hope that I would make in a similar situation, um but, um, but it is one valence of badness and transgression that needs to be addressed.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely, when I first saw the mention of it in the introduction, I was, I was, I was shocked. And I also didn't necessarily feel that, again, you, you want to root for a lot of these women. Um, and, and you do, but I, I, I do understand completely that what, what you, it's a lot more nuanced than simply that she's a really bad girl, but that you know you sympathize with her to some extent. Um, but speaking of sympathizing, I think the people that I sympathize the most most within this volume, um, are those women who draw on their own heritage to make their transgressions, to sort of step outside of those lines because in them, you sort of see, this 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 blending of worlds, um, and I th- you mentioned. I mean, there's the case of the Sudanese mu- female musicians, and then um, Hanadi El Samman's entry on contemporary Syrian writer Samad Yazbek draws our attention to um, particularly how one could use pre-Islamic vocabulary to describe. Um, the, the, the conflict in Syria right now. So I was wondering if you speak more more to that sort of the role of Arab and linguistic identity in, uh, bad girl narratives. Yeah.
0: Um, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head in terms of the, um, the, the really the value of, uh, of those two chapters in the volume. Um, and with regard to Samar Yazbek, um, uh, I think this is, this is a very, uh, Well, one thing that is absent from the volume, and it was actually something of a choice, um, is uh, uh, religion, uh, Islam. We did not want this book to become uh, bad Muslims, uh, bad Muslim girls, or bad girls of the Muslim world um, for a number of reasons, Um, and uh, one of which is that um, there is a lot of other great work that's that's being done in that area Um, but what this meant is that um a lot of the work that's being done in the context of religion which is obviously a big part of the cultural heritage um, uh, of the arab world um uh is not here so islamic feminism for instance um is not here and the contestations uh um Uh, around Islamic feminism is not a part of this. Um, So Samar Yazbek and her um, embrace of uh, the tropes of classical Arabic um, are just a very small gesture in that direction.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, I think that that's a very wise choice simply because you don't want to muddle those lines. But also, as you said, there's so much literature on what it is to be a bad Muslim another thing I really appreciate about the volume is that you incorporate not simply academic treatments of bad girls, but entries written by those people themselves. They're not just academic treatments. They're, you know, um, there's Rima Nejdi's description of her Madame Bomba project in Beirut, which involved her strapping these uh, very exaggerated TNT red uh, cylinders to her chest and walking around Beirut, which I can only imagine, especially when she did, it was, I think 2014, would have been terrifying. And then there's Dia Abdu's mini memoir um, of being in academia in Jordan, what it's like to be sort of, I mean, I don't want to spoil it, but forced out of that and brought back to the US because she didn't necessarily fit the mold. And actually, there's another case where there's, there's some Islam filtered in um, in her discussions with the male faculty, um, her superiors in particular. So how do these 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 memoirs, these mini memoirs, and these uh, accounts by artists—how do they fit into the volume at large? How do they fit into your vision of it?
0: Well, there were a couple of things. So we definitely we wanted we wanted some first person as well as third person in here, um, uh, for a number of reasons. That opened the volume up to some more creative types of writing. So it wasn't—it's not just academic works, but also, I mean, DL's chapter is just beautifully written. It's creative nonfiction, fiction um, but, but there are a number of other also beautiful personal narratives uh, such as Suhaire um, biography, and then the afterwards by the two um, women writers, Leila al-Atrash and Mira al-Tahawi. Um, so, so adding that, um, that kind of writing um, uh, was important in terms of of the volume uh, being accessible, being a pleasure to read, um, and the kind of affective uh, experiences one can have with that kind type of reading as opposed to uh, more academic um, reading um, and the insights that one can get um, uh, but um, the other thing that was really important to Rulla and and myself and me was um, that we wanted to be sure that we had a good blend of women in the region writing about this topic, as well as women um, outside the region, mainly here in the United States, but um, also in Europe. Um, uh, because um, it, obviously it makes a big difference in how you write about bad girls um, if you are in the fire. <laughs> so to speak, um, you know, addressing the issues um, of transgression in the Arab world every day. And when you're out of the fire, um, able to look at it from a distance. And both perspectives are really valuable and helpful. And here again, I can say that um, uh, the Pruti chapter, but also to some extent, the um, uh, Abdu's chapter, um, by providing some uh, 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 the perspective um, they provide a perspective of being in the United States whereby you were not out of the fire, you were still in the fire, even though you're not in the Arab world. Um, uh, And that also was important to convey.
1: I appreciate now, after having spoken to you even more, the fact that this was a very carefully curated volume, that you definitely wanted to include certain things um, and make it as inclusive as possible, not simply in terms of the voices you brought, but also thematically. And one piece in particular that we've mentioned before is Adaniya Shibli's piece on Palestinian mothers, So what I really appreciated about it is that it's one of the more pessimistic pieces in the volume. It's, um, to use your words, it reminds us how limited women's voices can still be. Uh, And this was really refreshing to me, especially living uh, both here in the United States, but also in the Arab world amongst certain liberal and progressive circles where there's so much emphasis on girl power and that the future is female and and so much on consumer feminism and that if we only bound together, we can get things done. And I think the pessimism is is important because it reminds us just how many limitations we might be blind to. So was it important that you produce something that was not overly positive and optimistic and empowering?
0: Yes, definitely. And here there's, it's that old debate between structure and individual agency and, you know, how much do our, 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 our choices and, and uh, actions defined by either of these two things. And I think um, uh, Adania's chapter beautifully illustrates how structures, the confining natures of constructures, not just the confining nature of structures, but the defining nature of structures in that Palestinian women, Palestinian mothers um, are defined, they're not just confined, um uh to particular roles or um or or opportunities they're actually defined by the structures um in this case media structures um tied to uh um, Israeli military and um state um they are defined in certain ways and there is nothing that they can do Uh, to get out of that. And that's a reality on the ground for some Arab women. Um, I I would say that's a reality on the ground for all women in in some ways and others, obviously, um, for some more than others. Um, uh, So yes, that was really important to include. Um, I would say that um, uh, Rawan Ibrahim's article on the orphans in Jordan is another example of this, um, where, uh, Um, women's roles are almost preordained just by the fact, you know, a girl is born an orphan, her father, she's not recognized by her father. Um, The chances of her um, not repeating the experiences of her mother um, are very slim.
1: So I do want to take a moment before you close up the interview to mention your co-editor, Rula West because she's no longer with us, unfortunately. She passed in the summer of 2017 due to complications of a biopsy she was having performed in which her aorta ruptured. So what do you hope her legacy to be?
0: Yeah, Rula's passing was, um, it was completely unexpected. It was a terrible, terrible blow um, she died just weeks before the volume came out. She never got to hold it in her hand. She was so she poured her life into this volume um, over the course of nearly th- nearly three years that we actively worked on it. Um, and um, she was a dear, dear friend. So um, it broke my heart when she passed, and uh, I think about her every day. Um, I think uh, Rula's legacy, Rula, Rula was a productive scholar. She wrote many um, articles and uh, books and uh, collected um, stories of her and published her students' writings and writings of women in Jordan. Um, and that's a wonderful legacy um, in and of itself. Uh, Rula was extraordinarily active at the University of Jordan. She was the founder uh, and first director of the Center for Women's Studies at the University of Jordan, which is the first of its kind um, in that country. Um, she had many other important administrative roles at the university, she was the part, she was a key part of almost every conversation happening in the region relating to women. Um, She was part of consortia, of symposia, of workshops. Um, um, If there was a good conversation to be had relating to women in the Arab world, Rula was there to be a part of it. Um, Rula was the most generous, (laughs) And dedicated of teachers, um, I know this because she taught my own students um, when we ran jointly ran a study abroad program uh, for UNC students to travel to Jordan in 2008 and 2012. I know it from talking to other people who have who have been her students, including Dia Abdu in the volume. Um, uh, and she just gave and gave and gave. Of her knowledge, um, but she also gave through example, and I think that is that is really where um, um, her legacy will live on in the um, uh, in the consciousness that she created um, among those that knew her. Um, those that worked with her and especially among those that she taught.
1: That's a really immense legacy. And I think it's definitely one that I hope, especially our listeners will take away, especially those academic listeners of ours will take away and and remember that that's, that's the the real work of academia. And that's where people really, it's it's not necessarily rewarded work and where we need to draw more recognition to it. So I hope that, I hope that her legacy lives on um, as a mentor, but also as an academic. Um, So we always, close the interview with a question to the author, in your case, the editor, uh, of what you are working on now. I know that we mentioned that you have a book coming out in July of 2018.
0: Well, that book it's called Palestinian cinema in the days of revolution. And it's about the, the film work of the PLO from 1968 to 1982. Um, and also that of, um, and, and related works um, by solidarity activists and um, filmmakers working in um, other contexts in the Arab world on works relating to Palestine at that time. Um, uh, then as far as um, uh, a next uh, next projects, I've got uh, two, um, well, I've got three actually in the works. So first in relation to Bad Girls, um, Uh, I've been invited to go um, almost a year from now um, uh, to participate in a symposium, which will be sort of a bad girls one year later, um, where I will reassess the book and um, the scholarship uh, related to feminism and uh, um, um, women in the Arab world that's come out, you know, since we finish the manuscript of this book until the time of that talk um, and sort of do a, a sort of an update on that. So I'm really looking forward to that as a um, um, as a context to uh, to continue thinking about these ideas. And then related to film, which is the other hat that I wear. Um, um, I have a, um, a uh, one project that came out of the um, the cinema book that uh, Palestinian cinema in the days of revolution, um, which is uh, I discovered um, um, a nice cache of documents related to efforts to create an alternative cinema movement beginning in the early 1970s, um, and that continued as a as a project um, that filmmakers tried to to bring to institutionalize um, over the course of the 70s. So. I'd like to pursue that and and write an article about that. Um, but then um, more ambitiously, really thinking of the current moment, the, both you know, politically the moment that we're in. You mentioned um, the Arab Spring, which, you know, sort of I, I like to think that we are still in a moment of tremendous political transition in the Arab world, that it's not as if the Arab Spring is gone and passed and failed, um, but rather that um, that was the, what we saw in 2011 uh, across the region was the beginning of something that is nowhere near over um, uh, and is also likely to get a lot worse before it gets better. Um, But thinking about cultural production in that context Um, We can also think about the, you know, Trump's, you know, moving the embassy to Jerusalem and the loss of Palestine, but really thinking about crisis and catastrophe and what one does in the context of crisis and catastrophe and what one does um, in the wake of um, utter loss. So this is something that goes beyond steadfastness. Um, I'm just at the beginning of thinking about it. Um, So I can't tell you what it is exactly, but uh, that's what I'm thinking about now.
1: Well, all of those projects really speak to my heart. So I'm very excited in particular for the book, but also to see what what your musings on this, um, the contemporary moment in the Arab world culturally, what it will bring to us, because I often, I I have myself of many thoughts on this, so I'm really curious to see what you'll come up with. But anyway, I wanted to thank you for the interview and thank you for the book, because it's really a wonderful addition to the canon um, on Middle Eastern gender studies and beyond.
0: Thank you, Nadira. It was a real pleasure to talk to you.